0: we need to get back to as people of the christian faith this understanding that the community is the center not the individual
1: i'm mitch and i'm missy we're co-workers he's the boss and we're married
2: and she's the boss together we host good faith weekly a podcast on faith and culture
1: What could possibly go wrong?
2: Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up. We are going to talk about the latest news on the debt ceiling, and we're going to celebrate Pride Month. And then later on, we sat down with Andy Watts. Andy is a professor of religion at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee, and he wrote an article some time back about the debate regarding the debt ceiling, and it is germane today as it was years ago. So stay tuned. It's going to be a good pod. Hello there, Missy. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. Happy Pride Month.
1: Well, happy Pride Month to you too.
2: Thank you so much. How are you going to celebrate?
1: Well, we here at Good Faith Weekly are celebrating the start of Pride Month, as all people should, by talking about the debt ceiling. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Nothing more festive than a great debate on the debt ceiling, right? Right,
1: right. So today's conversation is with Andy Watts, and we're talking to him, we're referencing an article he wrote a while back about the debt ceiling. You know,
2: I, I want to interject real quick because that article was during the Obama administration, and I kind of got all the warm and fuzzies when
1: I read it. That. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's really funny. So as any episode goes where we talk about anything involving civics, what do I like to do?
2: Give me a quiz.
1: Yes. (laughs) I have not studied. I'm going to let the listeners in on some behind the scenes action. So whenever we have a quiz, here is how my um, preparation begins. I Google whatever the topic is, fun facts. (laughs) You may all be surprised to learn that when you Google debt ceiling fun facts, there are exactly zero.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Google says, are you kidding me?
1: (laughs) So we're going to start with a quick debt ceiling um, quiz, and then we're going to pivot to something more fun. Okay. So um, I, I discovered that through Google that the debt ceiling is a restriction on how much the federal government can borrow to pay its bills and allocate funds for future investments. Okay. Sounds riveting, right? Very. Okay, so tell us, Mitch, when was the debt ceiling created?
2: Oh, um, I read this just the other day. Was it, was it during the Reagan administration,
1: the 80s? Reagan? No. The debt ceiling was created... By a 1917 federal law really? meant to help fund World War I without creating too much debt.
2: Oh, there you go.
1: There was another website that kind of said the 60s, but anyways, we're going to go with this one um, that says 1917, because I found that on a few different sources. So how many times has Congress raised the debt ceiling?
2: Oh, my gosh. Um, I would imagine 60. <laughs> 60.
1: 102 times since wow. World War II.
2: Since World War II? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay.
1: Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. What happens if the debt ceiling isn't raised?
2: We default on our bills. But
1: what happens?
2: Nobody really knows.
1: <laughs> All calamity ensues. So I'm going to take Fun this. fact. <laughs> it says, if the Congress doesn't raise the debt ceiling by the certain date, the federal government will default on some of its obligations, something that has never happened before. Experts say the ramifications of a debt default could be far-reaching and dire. And this is where I think we're going to be okay. Because, they say, think, a recession major losses in the stock market, and potential disruptions to social security payments. Ah. This is what I think we have security (laughs) is that... (laughs) <laughs> Those Congress folks know their constituents. <laughs> yes, they do.
2: They do. <laughs> yeah.
1: They're not getting their Social Security payments.
2: And again, this is a boomer problem. So, uh,
1: right. So you know, it will be solved. Will so, be solved. if everybody has hung in there thus far for our <laughs> very non fun fact quiz, so now we're going to pivot to. Something much more fun. Okay. Which is Pride Month, as we mentioned at the top of the show. So I decided it would be way more fun to have a quiz about Pride Month.
2: Okay. Don't you agree? I agree totally because I knew nothing about the debt ceiling.
1: Okay. So why is June Pride Month?
2: Because it is the anniversary of Stonewall.
1: Right. June is the month in which the Stonewall Riots of 1969 are commemorated. The Stonewall Inn, a well-known gay club in New York, Greenwich Village, was raided by the New York City Police on June 28, 1969. This provoked a wave of protests and violent conflicts in local bars and neighborhoods, serving as a catalyst for the global gay rights movement. However, Mm -hmm. I love this story. I may be the... Only one who didn't know this. The Stonewall Riots were not America's first LGBTQ uprising, which is not surprising. But this one I love. In May of 1959, a group of LGBTQ individuals who were fed up with being mistreated by police fought back at Cooper Donuts in Los Angeles.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, as one would. They,
1: according to the website out the group, which was led by several transgender women, quote, pelted officers with donuts, coffee, and paper plates <laughs> until they were forced to retreat and return with larger numbers. <laughs> oh,
2: wow. It that's, is, that's been like bricks.
1: <laughs> it is believed to be the first documented LGBTQ uprising in U.S. history. But I love the imagery oh, of the, the coffee, great. the donuts, and... Paper plates. And paper plates. That's
2: awesome. Uh, Hey, you mentioned Stonewall and uh, our media producer, Cliff Vaughn, whom we all love and adore. He and I were actually in New York City in 2019 to celebrate not only Pride Month, but the 50th anniversary of. Stonewall uprising. It was really cool. We went down to Stonewall and I mean, there are thousands and thousands of people. We may have hung out with, um, you know, Lady Gaga as well. Sure you did.
1: <laughs> I bet. <laughs> From a very safe distance. But it was right? really cool. It
2: really was really cool.
1: So where and when was the first Pride Parade held?
2: Oh, I would say... Either New York City or San Francisco.
1: Okay, most people feel like it's uh, New York, but actually it's Chicago. Oh, okay. Um, So while the Christopher Street Gay Liberation Day March in New York City is widely considered to be the first Pride Parade, it actually occurred one day after Chicago held its first march, which technically makes Chicago the birthplace of pride. Very cool. And did you know, I like this fun fact too, As someone from the South, not all pride parades and LGBTQ celebrations are held in June. Do you know why?
2: No, I do not know why.
1: Because it's dadgum hot here (laughs) in June.
2: (laughs) Yeah, that is true.
1: (laughs) So many celebrations take place in the fall because that makes sense. And we need to turn to our LGBTQIA plus individuals for advice on such things because they've got it right.
2: That's exactly right.
1: Um, So certain Atlanta Pride, Orlando Pride, Kentuckiana Pride in Louisville, Kirk. Occur closer to National Coming Out Day in October. So I support this decision. (laughs) Do you know who is considered the mother of pride?
2: Oh, my goodness. No, I do not know this.
1: Brenda Howard. She's a bisexual woman. While the first Pride Parade may have been held in Chicago, the mantle of, quote, Mother of Pride belongs to a lifelong New Yorker, Brenda Howard. A Bronx-born bisexual woman, she organized the Christopher Street Liberation Day March and is hailed as one of the 20th century's leading voices in bisexual rights and equality. Cool. Yeah. Who was the first sitting president to officially recognize Pride Month.
2: Oh, wow. Um, I'm going to say Obama.
1: Actually, no. Bill Clinton. On June 11, 1999, President Bill Clinton issued Proclamation Number 7203. It was the first time a U.S. president had officially recognized June as Gay and Lesbian Pride Month. On the other hand, asterisk, <laughs> <laughs> <And> <laughs> he here we go. also established the odious don't ask, don't tell policy say. in 1994, <laughs> which prohibited openly LGBTQ people from serving in the military. So, I mean, there is that. There is that. After that, President George W. Bush did not recognize Pride Month. Uh, President Barack Obama, however, uh, followed Clinton's example, marking Pride Month and expanding it to include bisexual and transgender Americans every year he was in office. President Donald Trump
2: <laughs> oh.
1: did tweet. He did. I mean, which in his language, that's an official proclamation, right? That is his lovely. Okay, that is his or love his language. Hate language. <laughs> Whatever
2: you want. To <laughs> well, say. there you go.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but he uh, tweeted about Pride Month in June of 2019, but never officially recognized it. And then on June 1st, 2021, President uh, Joe Biden's administration issued a proclamation recognizing June as Pride Month. So sure. that's a little presidential history. So we're tying the civics in here too, yeah, right? Very,
2: uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, you, you mentioned uh, uh, just kind of how the presidents have recognized Pride Month. I'll, but I'll never, ever forget, as long as I live, the day that same sex marriage was uh, the Supreme Court ruled that it was constitutional and the White House lit up in rainbow colors. I mean, it was just, you know, people came and just celebrated. It was just such a cool day.
1: I almost, I actually took out a question about that particular date because I felt like we might go a little long, but I agree. And if you haven't read um, Michelle Obama's memoir about her time in the White House, that story of that day. And her um, and one of the girls trying to escape the White House to go see the colors was, I I mean, I've got chills just thinking about it. (laughs) It was just a fun little behind the scenes story about just the juxtaposition of their situation and that they were having a hard time even getting outside to see it. But it was beautiful. Anyways. Okay. So last question.
2: I have not been doing very well on these Christmas You, you haven't.
1: <laughs> um, I'm just going to say, no, it's fine. It's all in good fun. We don't, this this assignment is not for a grade. I'm having is to it? channel my inner high school. <laughs> this assignment is not for a grade. Okay. So who hosted the world's largest pride parade?
2: Oh, um, the world's largest. The
1: world's largest pride parade.
2: Um, London? Or France?
1: No, but kudos to you for going outside of the United States.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I just assume. I mean, because sexuality has been a lot more freer in other countries, in some other countries. Wait, you
1: got to stop. Okay, this may not be for a grade, but the grammarian in me is really going to fixate on the last statement you made. Which was? I've forgotten it now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I said because... Other countries have been more free with their sexuality?
1: Did you say more freer? Probably.
2: I probably did that. You
1: probably did. Okay.
2: Sorry about that, all you grammarians out there.
1: That's right. Okay. So the world's largest pride parade was held in Sao Paulo. Brazil. Brazil.
2: You know, I almost said Brazil. Did you really? I really did because I was thinking, you know, I mean, lots and lots of people, it's a, you know, they celebrate big down there in Brazil. But then I was thinking, well, lately they've gotten a little bit more conservative. So anyway, any rate, a lot of things Also, I
1: probably butchered the pronunciation of that. So no, it was good. That was I feel like I need to, yeah. to add that disclaimer. Um, so it began with a modest 2,000 spectators in 1997, but has since grown to millions. Awesome. The Guinness Book of World Records ranked Sao Paulo's parade as the largest gay pride parade celebration in the world in 2006 with 2.5 million attendees, and it has not been beaten since.
2: Kudos to them.
1: So, but um, not to leave out the good old USA, other leading pride parades aren't far behind with approximately 2 million participants in New York and 1.7 in San Francisco. Awesome. So I thought the pride quiz was way more fun than the debt ceiling quiz. However, I also understand that the debt ceiling is somehow important to us.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, if we don't want calamity to happen, as you suggested in the quiz, they need to get this deal done. It looks like it's going to happen over the weekend. Uh, It's gotten through the house, which you know, was an ordeal, now it's on to the Senate, Uh, both Schumer and McConnell want to expedite it, get it to the president's desk, hopefully by Monday, because if it's not signed by Monday, we're out of money and the world ends. But no pressure.
1: (laughs) No pressure at all. But dang it, they got to work over the weekend.
2: Oh. Poor, poor Congress. It
1: stinks. They are going to miss all the pride parades.
2: (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. So speaking of pride, and I know we need to get to our interview, but uh, at goodfaithmedia.org this month during Pride Month, we are running a series uh, from different authors uh, talking about inclusion and equality and pride. It's a great series that our listeners are going to want to stay tuned for because it really is going to be cool. Absolutely. Well, stay tuned. Missy and I sat down with Andy Watts. Have the last few years shifted your faith? I'm Brett Harris, and last year I walked away from the pulpit without a plan. I just knew where I was wasn't where I was supposed to be. And I'd love for you to join me as I wander and wonder about faith and scripture and how we can continue to follow Jesus' example even when our path forward is unclear. Find God knows where today in your favorite podcast app. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a special guest with us. Andy Watts is a professor of religion at Belmont University and teaches undergraduate courses in religion and social ethics, also serving as the field education advisor for the college. He has 13 years of experience teaching college-level courses in Tennessee prisons. He is a member of the SALT School for Alternative Learning and Transformation Program in Nashville, which collaborates with the incarcerated students to bring transformative justice and conflict transformation skills inside the prison walls while transforming the practice of punishment in U.S. society. And he engages Belmont students in experiential learning, through his work with SALT and on study away programs, through relationships with tribal members on reservations. He has been published in academic and popular resources on these activities. He is ordained at Highland Baptist Church in Louisville and has served as a board member and moderator for the Tennessee Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. Andy, welcome to Good Faith Weekly.
0: Thank you, Mitch. It's really good to be here.
1: Andy, we brought you here today to talk about a very riveting subject, (laughs) that of the debt ceiling. And as it has been well documented on this podcast, um, I didn't pay super great attention in civics class in (laughs) high school. So we're going to start this conversation before my first official question. And I'm going to, we're going to go and we're going to pretend I have a civics quiz next period. You're sitting next to me and I haven't studied. And I say, Andy, help me out. What do I need to know to pass this quiz? Tell me about the debt ceiling.
0: The debt ceiling. That's a great question. So the debt ceiling, um, this is a um, a process by which the government needs to pay its debts, which hit a threshold during the Civil War in the uh, 1800s. And so soon after that, the 14th Amendment says we need to pay our debts. And that's how we got credit across European countries' opinions to to receive some funding for the war uh, during the Civil War, at least the the Union states did. So since then, this has been a priority to recognize US debt. Now, I must just say to you real fast, I do have an undergraduate degree in political science, <laughs> but I am a religion teacher. Yeah, yeah. I am a theologian and a theological ethicist. And so I'm speaking outside of my field of expertise, but I am an armchair political theorist and an armchair economist. You know, I like to to dabble in that. Um the debt ceiling is important, I think, because it does, as I said in my article in 2011, it helps fund or provide funding for the complex avenues that um, of resources that it takes to run the kind of democracy that the United States is.
1: I was going to say, that's a great segue into my question, which I think you're about to answer anyways, but... Back in 2011, you wrote an article you just referenced for EthicsDaily.com that we republished um, this last week on GoodFaithMedia.org, addressing the debt ceiling standoff between then-President Barack Obama and House Speaker John Boehner. You wrote a couple of quotes in the article that I want to address today. Um, The first one is, take the current debt ceiling battle. We shouldn't be fooled into thinking it's simply a fiscal debate. So what is the real issue in the debt ceiling debate? It's about the debt of thoroughly democratic governance. And the next statement you made was, what are we, what we are witnessing in Congress is not a fear of too much debt, but too much democracy. Talk to me about those statements and kind of expand on those a little bit where those two fields intersect.
0: Thank you for um, asking that question, because that's something that I think really connects well with... Um, somebody who has an expertise in biblical scholarship or in social ethics based on biblical principles or interpretation of the Bible. I think it's really interesting that this year's debt crisis comes three years after the pandemic began and the 2011 contract with America came three years after the great recession and that the 1996 reorganization by bill clinton um replacing afdc with tamp came right after the economic um mini recession under reagan and also you know bill clinton's ascendancy to the presidency so there were some 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 insecurities that i think led to these kinds of conservative battles using this one very potent tool the um funding the united states debt providing enough monies for that and i don't think it's about money in particular i think it is about uh what kind of democracy some citizens want to have especially those citizens on the right and i I talked about insecure citizenries in that article and when insecurity sets in i think that people circle the wagons because they feel like they're either threatened or they're losing power And now it's even intensified by MAGA in the same way it was intensified by the Tea Party in 2011. And then the contract with America under Newt Gingrich in 1994 through 96. So I think you have this change. And um, I think this idea of cultural wars is just one expression of the fear that's arising from these changes. It's kind of momentous. Maybe I don't think they're as momentous as some people think they are but these momentous challenges to what the United States looks like as democracy. So Andy, I
2: mean, in in your answer there, which I really, really appreciate, um, you know, your article was specific about the uh, the debt ceiling debate back in the Obama presidency. I think it's also an important point to make that this is, these are expenses that the federal government have already They've already succumbed to these expenses. This is just paying what we've already done. This isn't future spending. this is past spending that we're talking about. Uh, and so you know talking about the 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 democratic process about democracy and insecurities, is there any difference between the debate during the Obama presidency and the Biden presidency? Uh, you mentioned MAGA and how it's been ramped up, but are are there any other differences? And if it is primarily the rise of this extreme right in the Republican Party, why do you think, what is their goal at this
0: point? And that's another <laughs> interesting question. I don't know if I'm... Uh... Um, an expert or enough of an expert in studying the, the political culture that's causing what I think you just identified a new trend in this. Um, I do think it's interesting that in the new Testament and to kind of go back to my biblical roots here in the new Testament, as the church grew on from the life of the apostle Paul and kind of its, its original beginnings. And it started to face several hundred years later some some challenges from the Roman Empire, or at least the citizenry of that, the challenges the church Christians presented to culture, they started to become more conservative. We see that in the writings of Timothy and those other texts. And I think that fear is part of this fear of this cultural shift that's occurring right now, uh, as it's kind of has a crescendo, it seems, in the minds of people on the far right, especially the MAGA people. I don't know if I'm right about that, but what I think is happening, and we see this with the Supreme Court too, there is a vigilant effort to uh, make impotent the federal government, to put uh, the economic and political power in state governments, and this has been a promise of the Conservative Party for 30 years now to do this, and I think you see this coming to ascendancy not only with the Supreme Court decisions and its behaviors. But also with this kind of MAGA um, challenge to the national debt, compared to the um, compared to the Tea Party's challenge, the Tea Party was at least willing to play with the politics of federalism. I don't think MAGAs are. I think they they want to dismiss it. I want. I think they don't want to reform it for their liking. I think they want to remove it, erase it.
2: And I think that is a good point because you hear a lot of the politicians who had fallen in the manga camp uh, talk about, it seems okay to them if we default on our debt. Um, you know, and that is what is so confusing because you hear, uh, you know, conservative Republicans who are fiscally conservative talk about the danger of that kind of rhetoric and allowing us to default on our debt, what that's going to cause or what that would cause to our economy overall. But they just seem to want to burn it down.
0: <laughs> and that's their goal, it seems to me. I was just reading a quote, I think, on NPR article that I read today uh, about one of the majority of the majority of the Republican um caucus and House representatives, he said, and I don't remember which one it was, um, he said, I'm a politician and a problem solver, and I'm going to vote for this bill because it's my problem solver self overcoming my politician instincts here as a Republican. And I think that's where you see this divide between the majority of the majority in the Republican Party in the House. They're, they want to be problem solvers working with the governmental instruments that we have. And then you have the Freedom Caucus who's saying, no, burn it to the ground in effect. Yeah.
2: And you mentioned it a moment ago, and, and I think this is something of a driving force. There is There are some theological. Underpinnings to this type of attitude, and you know, you you talked in your article about the importance of democracy, and democracy, uh, as far as governance is concerned, has a theology of equity within it that everyone is made equal, you know, by their creator and in the eyes of their creator. But it seems as though those who are in opposition to policies like this have kind of this this dominionism that permeates their theology, that there needs to be a ruling class and they are it, and everybody else just needs to follow along and go along uh, with the major or with what they would say, not necessarily the majority, but the ruling class. That seems to be once again, be at play. I mean, this seems to be a debate that this country has always had of a ruling class versus everyone else.
0: Yes. And as you mentioned in your introduction of me, when I work with folks inside the prisons or I work with uh, tribal members on reservations, they always remind me that inherent in the documents of the uh, Constitution and the Bill of Rights is language that supports that kind of dominionist uh, kind of perspective of what the United States should be. And and that's why I think, just as a side note, you know, talking about originalist language in the Supreme Court or sticking to the literal uh, intentions of the founders of these documents, that can be dangerous without context. James Samuel Logan, in his book, Good Punishment, talks about the need in the United States in the context of mass incarceration of creating those who are in by Christians, by the way, those who are in and those who are out. And this follows a long tradition in Christian theological thought of going back to Thomas Aquinas of labeling folks who are damned in order to ensure that there are people who are saved. And so I think this conservative mindset that we see is kind of like the one we saw in Second Thessalonians where you have that little verse that says, if you don't work, you won't eat. Um, and in, the important thing to re- recognize, I think, about that is that, was, that, that comment by the author wasn't talking about the poor. It was talking about the wealthy, those who uh, don't do anything. But they are busybodies and they want to comment expertly on all the affairs of the church without contributing anything. The poor have always worked, but we have this class divide here in in times of urgency. I think that the the labeling and the ostracizing and the uh, exclusion of these folks by those who are in power is even more pronounced. And I think you see that now there's a blame game that goes on. It's blaming immigrants or blaming the welfare queen that we saw in Chicago back in the 1990s. And the policy then uh, that we see in this bill, especially with raising the age limit for those in the TAMP funds, raising that age limit for uh, to receive assistance, that, that working limit, that's more punishment on the poor. It's more de- I think dominionist perspective and activity. Thank you for that answer.
1: Uh, That is such an interesting point you make about the verse about you don't uh, work, you don't eat. I have not heard that kind of flipped upside down, but that, is a completely new perspective on that particular passage. I appreciate that. But in light of that, and kind of going back to your statement earlier about what we are witnessing in Congress is not a fear of too much debt, but too much democracy. You did such a great job in the article of explaining kind of what that meant and how people of faith should frame thoughts um, and actions in in matters of of democracy and, and as it pertains to the debt ceiling. So as we kind of go into more of these conversations um, going forward, how talk to us about people of faith? How we frame our minds eye around these conversations, and how do we approach these policies um, going forward?
0: That's a good question. A lot of people of the Christian faith don't believe that Christians should actually bring bring their their values into the political arena and have them influence the way we think about policy. And then we have those who say that they're only their version of their uh, right. of their principles and their faith should form and shape our policies. Um, I think it's very interesting that in the Baptist tradition, and I'm speaking about my own tradition here, uh, there's a document that has three iterations. That's the Baptist faith and message statement. And I think it's really interesting that in the 1963 version of that statement in the definition of the church the word democratic was inserted into the definition of the church it didn't occur in the 1920s version but it continued after the 1960s and what was going on in the 1960s was democratic upheavals in africa and in nations that have been colonized and in the united states as well so culture affects um what Christians believe and how they practice their beliefs. And that's why I think that there is an anti-democratic strain in what's going on with this debt ceiling fight. And I say that because I think that when we think about democracy, we're talking about the enfranchisement of every single citizen and the refusal to exclude those just because they don't participate in some ways that we think from our faith perspective, should be normalized, perhaps. Um, Matthew Desmond's new book, Poverty by America, Mm -hmm. is a fantastic analysis of the idea that uh, being a working member of society, being an American citizen, living in a low income status, or being part of communities that are deprived of resources is so complex we can't even identify with one simple judgment or analysis what's going on there. So we shouldn't make policy that targets one feature of what we think is the problem from a a privileged perspective, how problematic that is. Mm -hmm. And so from a faith perspective, I think the Old Testament ethic of the flourishing of the entire community at all times, and that justice starts with the flourishing of the community as well as the individual, but inside of the community, needs to guide our policymaking. We need to get back to, as people of the Christian faith, this understanding that the community is the center, not the individual.
2: Wow. And that is such a, another great segue into my question, because it seems as though, if we're really honest with ourselves, um, unrestricted capitalism is our true religion here in America, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that uh, usurps uh, Christianity in general. Um That being said, do you think there is potential for us to return to this community-centered ideology? Because even capitalism itself is really, in my opinion, bad economics, because it does set into place – Uh, survival of the elite or those taking it, it rewards those who are able to take advantage or play the system better or have different or have better advantages over others. But could we get into a capitalism, because I don't think we're ever going to get away from a capitalistic society, but could we get to a point where we realize that
0: when community thrives, we all thrive, uh, that's <laughs> again not speaking as an economist, but right. I think it's very interesting that what we see here are also um really strong attempts to un unravel the New Deal. Um we see this attempt by neoliberal economic dogma to undo what FDR put helped put in place and acted in some ways, as a democratic socialist way of envisioning a a safety net. Mm -hmm. It didn't go far enough, I don't think in my view, Um, but capitalism does, from my perspective, capitalism's values of scarcity, utility, and competition, those three, and and, and we always talk about the church of Walmart, right? Um, Those three things as the intrinsic values of capitalism, which says it's value neutral, so that it ignores those, uh, you know, just, just opportunistically. Mm-hmm. Those things are, are values that I think people of faith need to resist as fundamental values. Of course, they appear in our daily lives in different ways, and they can be very good things. Um, recognizing those three values. But as fundamental values for what human nature is, I think that's erroneous, and we we need to deal with that. But unfortunately, we've conflated Christianity, the gospel, and Adam Smith's invisible hand to such a point where it's never going away, I think. Yeah,
2: and that's always what's amazed me about especially Christians advocating for all of these cuts, especially when they're geared towards um, you know the poor, the unhoused, I mean minority groups uh, in this country um, that they seem to just set aside, a lot of Jesus' teachings. (laughs) Just totally ignore them. (laughs) And in place, all of a sudden, they come these unrestricted capitalists. And like, this part of my Christianity, I'm just going to lock away and put away. But now I'm going to focus in on on what really matters to me, and that is keeping the I just like to bring that
1: flipping tables Jesus in every now (laughs) and again for good measure. (laughs) Right, yeah. That's,
2: That's absolutely true. Well, Andy, you have enlightened us. I really appreciate uh, your time with us today on Good Faith Weekly. Uh, But before we let you go, Missy's got one last question for you.
1: Well, Andy, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of our conversation today and the work that you do, what is your more to tell?
0: That's a great question. Um, And I I would say volumes, (laughs) but (laughs) I listen to from my armchair where I think that I'm a expert in politics. I listen to pundits and I don't think from my perspective that the threats to the structures, and institutions of democracy that appear to be swirling right now, they're not as eminently dangerous as people think they are. And so the more to tell is that by strong activism and strong advocacy at local levels, for instance, here in Nashville, where <laughs> I'm just going to mention this, um, Tennessee had the highest level of unused TAMP funds in 2020 than any other state and the ninth highest level of child poverty. We cannot lose hope in the strength of activists, organizing, and advocacy at the local level, despite all of the national things that are going on. All those things are right, but at the local level, I think people of faith need to pay attention to the neighbor and to the institutions and structures that are affecting our local communities because that's where we live and breathe and where we take care of each other.
2: Amen. I I couldn't have said it any better. Uh, So Andy, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Andy Watts is a professor of religion at Belmont University, and you can find out more on their website. And Andy, we need you to send us some more great interns like you've done in the past.
0: Yes, I have some, I think. Good, good. good. Mm, absolutely.
1: And go check out goodfaithmedia.org for Andy's Look Back article. It was so well done and such a, a great, unfortunately, now timely again. Yes, yes, again. <laughs> Twelve years later. Um, article and it will be timely
2: again in 2025 when right. we have this
0: debate once again. <laughs> absolutely. So go take a look at that right. article.
1: Thank uh, you, Andy.
0: Mitch and Missy, Thank you.
1: Andy inspired me to do something I haven't done in such a very long time. Oh, really? Yes. What's that? I went to the bookshelf to grab a Bible. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> of course, instead of flipping through your phone, as I you was gonna often say, someone do, someone on a daily might basis. assume
1: that that means I don't <laughs> read the Bible. And while in some to some degree that might be accurate in terms of frequency, I did actually go get a a Bible. Okay. Um so what so, you find
2: in that Bible besides dust. <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> I was thinking about the verse that he mentioned in 2 Thessalonians yep. about work and I just thought I want to go see this because it's another example of something that was taught, you know, in our church context mm-hmm. growing up. I spent my formative years in church in the 80s.
2: Oh, okay.
1: In Texas, you can imagine, which, I mean, that that space holds, you know, some warm and fuzzy memories, but sure. also, you know, trying to reconcile that and deconstruct some of the right. things that maybe weren't um, things I should hold on to. <laughs> so... Folks, we're going to have some Bible study today. Oh,
2: swords at the ready.
1: You up for that? <laughs> okay, so I'm going to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10 from the, what version is this? That's the
2: NRSV. NRSV.
1: It says, For even when we were with you, we gave you this command, anyone unwilling to work should not eat
2: that seems pretty clear to That'll me. That'll
1: preach, Mitch. I mean, <laughs> I right? mean right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and I should have said,
1: oh, sorry, Sorry. this is from two Thessalonians. <laughs> two Thessalonians,
2: <laughs> that's right.
1: So oh, I want to, So tell me,
2: down in Texas in the 1980s, what did you hear about that particular verse that in the Bible? That
1: particular verse was equated to um, President Reagan's kind of his campaign, I don't know, mantra about the welfare queen. Mm-hmm. And I, you and I recently listened to a podcast about that, kind of unpacking and telling the truth, you know, of of this woman who, you know, he was speaking about specifically, but it just became a general term. Sure. I remember it being spoken in my circles. I remember talking about that. I remember, you know, hearing from church pulpits and Bible studies, this verse. Well, if you're not willing to work, then you shouldn't eat. And you think, oh, okay, well, sure, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we've read little children's books about it. Right. Um, But then when Andy was talking and said, no, that's not who that was directed to. Right. And so I wondered if you would talk a little bit just as a reminder to our audience or as a reminder to me about this um, book that we call the Bible that we hold, you know, in as the word inspired by God, talk to it, even this particular passage or this particular book, as what it is. It's a letter.
2: Sure. Yeah, and it's one of the very first letters that uh, biblical scholars claim to be some of the oldest words of the first century church, uh, even predating the Gospels themselves. So it's a very important letter, both one Thessalonians and two, and Thess- two Thessalonians. So you're
1: saying they predate the Gospels because yes. we, want, we want to believe the Bible is written chronologically. Correct. It is not. No,
2: it is not. And so this is some of the earliest writings that we have from that first century church. And in this particular case, it is from the Apostle Paul writing a letter in this case, a second letter to the church at Thessalonica. Now, what we know about Thessalonica is that it was a port city. It also had two main routes coming into it. Uh, This was a Roman-occupied city, so as you can imagine, there was a lot of trade that took place. It was a very wealthy town, both on the port as well as these roads traveling in. So, very wealthy town, Uh, Paul and Silas, are there during their second missionary journey, uh, as we find out in Acts. And it is there in Thessalonica that Paul and his entourage work very hard, and he says this in the letter itself, and win people to follow the way, as it was called, the way of Jesus. What we know about this is that a lot of scholars assume that these were jewish converts but the reality is they were probably gentile converts uh, from the language in these letters because paul specifically mentions that they were idol worshipers which means they were most likely gentiles not jews Mm -hmm. if that's the case then these are probably the core the the core element of this church is probably pretty wealthy Mm -hmm. um kind of upper crust of this particular uh, region. This is also a case, let's see, when we read the Bible, we need to read it in its totality, and we need to put it in its context. Because in this verse in particular, we do read that if you don't work, you should not eat, But what does the following verse say? Would you like
1: me to read the next comment in the comment thread? (laughs) (laughs) Please do. Of the um, Biblical Times social media um, equivalent. Okay, so verse 11 says, For we hear that some of you are living in idleness, mere busybodies not doing any work.
2: So this, again, is written to the church has nothing to do with, you know, their professional life, their career life, whatever they're doing. This is in this is happening in the church. Mm-hmm. And what we know about some of these first century churches, especially in Thessalonica, that there was a social order that began to emerge and they were having a diff they were having a difficult time understanding this concept of we are all equal before the Lord uh, and that there is... Good
1: thing we got that one figured out. (laughs)
2: Yeah, right. (laughs) Exactly. And so they were positioning themselves for places of honor. They were not getting ready for, they weren't helping with worship. They were helping with the commemoration of the Lord's Supper, but they were always first in line. They always wanted the prominent places. And so when Paul's talking about eating, he's talking about the love feast, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, these important meals that they had together as a community. And what he is saying, if you did not help, then why should you eat? Your faith is just a mere shadow. It's nothing real. And so he's trying to admonish, especially the wealthy and the privileged within the church, that... They need to work. They need to be part of the congregation, to part of the the worship of uh, our Lord, and be a part of the community, and that we're all equal in the eyes of God, especially in the church.
1: Are you saying it takes a village? That's what I'm hearing. Yeah,
2: I'm also yeah. I'm (laughs) saying it takes a village, and then even more so, you cannot take these texts out of context. You have to measure them. And it's so important for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus to measure Paul's words against the teachings and life of Jesus. Jesus was all about empowering the ostracized and the marginalized, the poor, the sick, the stranger, the outsider. Jesus was a proponent and an advocate for those individuals. And his harshest criticism was always leveled against those in power and those who had money and influence.
1: Right. Well, I just I I appreciate that reminder. I so appreciated what Andy said about that verse. You know, he said he's not talking to the poor or the quote unquote welfare queen. Mm-hmm. You know, he's talking to, like you said, the privileged, the wealthy, who have learned to take advantage of those who are not. Um, So I, I don't know. I just felt like that was such a, a, I don't know, a light bulb moment for me. It's amazing. I mean, it's not amazing, but you know, you still continue to have those no matter how old you are. I thought it was worth visiting about for a little bit, and I mean. I grabbed a Bible off the bookshelf, so <laughs> that's, that's always a good I, day. Right? I have
2: one final point before we wrap this up today: this is also another instance where there. This is the Americanization of the Bible. They flipped it. They flipped the, those who interpreted and flipped the script. They flipped the script, and that all of a sudden, this became about you know, the poor who don't work and who are on welfare.
1: Or lazy. Or lazy, yeah. yeah, You got to remember that word.
2: That is not what this text is about at all. And Jesus was not about that at all. For some reason in the Western church, we have flipped that and we have equated all of the harsh th- this harsh criticism of laziness and idleness and busybody to the poor and that is not the case the case has always been those criticisms are against the wealthy and the powerful and those with influence in this country or in this world and we must never forget that so we should let our theology drive our desire to do better for those who are in need. It is not a handout. It is a, a, an offering to say, we see you, we recognize you, we know that you need some assistance right now because every person I have met that would con- be considered poor in this country they're hard workers. Some of them, a majority of them are working. The debate that we just had about the debt ceiling and uh, the SNAP funds, a majority of those people are hardworking Americans. They have jobs, but they still cannot meet basic needs. Right. This country is at its best when we see the least of these in our country and reach out to them and empower them and help them get back on their feet. We do it on loc- in local communities all the time after disasters, after tragedies. We need to be doing this systemically through our national policies and state policies. So that's my soapbox.
1: Man, we could go on. I, I could go <laughs> on on this for a long time. We will revisit this Absolutely. because I have so much more to say, but um, we will sign off for today and circle back.
2: Absolutely. Until next week, keep living good faith. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture.
1: Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5.
2: And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.